It's Thursday, February 27th, 2020. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Poe Runyon. And tonight we have a discussion on the mysterious ideomotor effect, which motivates such divinatory devices as the Ouija board, the pendulum, and the Golden Dawn's ring and disc. It is also related to dowsing rods and to our zero light. Although the effect is considered a scientific rationale for the phenomenon, it in itself is, is miraculous and may be more complex and supernatural than the debunkers imagine. So, if you want to learn how to contact your deep mind, Stay with us and hang out with the pendulum swingers. Now, before we before we get into our to our script, I think I think what I'm going to do is 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 read uh, Wikipedia's uh, official <laughs> scientific official. Uh, uh, pronouncement on the idiometer response. This is this is the Wikipedia's idiomotor phenomenon. The idiomotor phenomenon is a psychological phenomenon wherein a subject makes motions unconsciously. Now the idiomotor the idiomotor response or idiomotor reflex, often abbreviated as IMR, is a concept in hypnosis and psychological research. It is derived from the terms idio, idea, or mental representation, and motor, muscular action. The phrase is most commonly used in reference to the process whereby a thought or mental image brings about a seemingly reflexive or automatic muscular reaction, often of minuscule degree, and potentially outside of the awareness of the subject, as in reflexive responses to pain, times reacts reflexively with an idiomotor effect to ideas alone without the person consciously deciding to take action. The effects of automatic writing, dowsing, facilitated communication, and Ouija boards have been attributed to this phenomenon. The associated term idiodynamic response or reflex applies to a wider domain and extends to the description of all bodily reactions, including idiomotor and idiosensory responses, caused in a similar manner by certain ideas. For example, the salivation often caused by imagining sucking on a lemon, which is a secretory response. The notion of an idiodynamic response contributed to James Baird's first neuropsychological explanation of the principle through which suggestion operated in hypnotism. And there's, and of course, they're showing pictures of of table turning uh, you know, here uh, during the uh, you know the Victorian era. Uh, in France, a circle of participants press their hands against a table, and the idiomotor effect causes the table to tilt in such a way as to produce a written message in a manner similar to a Ouija board. And uh, so we continue with this. Um, the history of scientific investigation. 
With the rise of spiritualism in the 1840s, mediums devised and refined a variety of techniques for communicating ostensibly with the spirit world, including table turning and planchette writing boards and the precursor to later Ouija boards. These phenomena and devices quickly became the subject of scientific investigation. The term ideomotor was first used in a scientific paper discussing the means through which these spiritualistic phenomena produced effect by William Benjamin Carpenter in 1852. Hence, the alternative term Carpenter effect. Carpenter derived the word ideometer from the components ideo, meaning idea, or mental representation, and motor, meaning muscular action. Carpenter explained his theory that Muscular movement can be independent of conscious desires or emotions. Carpenter was a friend and collaborator of James Baird, the founder of modern hypnotism. Baird soon adopted Carpenter's ideomotor terminology to facilitate the transmission of his most fundamental views based upon those of his teacher, the philosopher Thomas Brown that the efficacy of hypnotic suggestion was contingent upon the subject's concentration upon a single, thus dominant, idea. In 1855, Baird explained his decision to abandon his earlier term, moto ideomotor, based on Carpenter's ideomotor principle, and adopt the more appropriate and more descriptive term, mono-ideodynamic. His decision was based upon suggestions made to Carpenter in 1854 by their friend and common Daniel Noble that the activity that Carpenter was describing would be more accurately understood in its wider applications, uh, wider than pendulums and Ouija boards, if it were to to be dominated the idiodynamic, and it was to be dominated the idiodynamic principle. All right, well, that gives you a pretty good idea of, uh, of what we're talking about. But the subject of our discussion tonight is the ideometer uh, in relation to hermetic magic. Now, when I started researching this topic on the Internet, I made a remarkable discovery. Not only is the ideometer effect being called a scientific debunk of Ouija boards, pendulum divination, and dowsing, but related psychodynamic effects such as the visual distortion Troxler effect and even hypnosis itself are being scientifically debunked these days by a coterie of self-appointed experts who seem to believe that when a phenomenon is declared an effect, it has become scientific and can be no longer and can no longer have any credibility as an occult or shamanic practice. Frankly, this is bovine excrement. Even if tiny muscular twitches, the ideomotor effect, are actually responsible for pendulum or planchette movements, and photoreceptors in the retina are responsible for Troxler's visual distortions. And if both these physical effects are influenced by the powers of suggestion, that makes them no less supernatural. Because our ancient and modern hermetic philosophy embraces both magical mentalism and shamanic animism. 
The ideomotor effect was scientifically discovered by William Carpenter in response to spiritualist table turners in the 1840s, and he proposed that involuntary muscular action, hence ideomotor meaning idea and action, caused these effects. Actually, Carpenter's theory has never been really proved. All that has been proved is that there must be physical contact between the operators and the planchette or the pendulum, dowsing rod, or whatever. Now, the magician and hypnotist James Hazelrig has videoed an experiment using a wand with three suspended pendulums that strongly challenges Carpenter's involuntary muscular theory. And I also performed an experiment suspending a pendulum from a long dental pick, which I held between thumb and forefinger. Yes, we must have contact, but muscles in the fingertips may not be the communicators. In occult terms, the so-called ideomotor effect may actually be an etheric manipulation. In other words, it is magic. And, of course, and remember, uh, Mesmer, Mesmer uh, did, did quite a bit of manipulating magnetic fluids through, through the body. And, 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 of course, naturally, he was discredited and, uh, for that. But, but uh, it, seems, uh, it seems like it still works. In an effort to debunk the Ouija board, these ideomotor scientists declare that there are no spirits roaming around waiting to be called. They are all in the minds of the operators. And, of course, they're correct about that. The human mind is the only receiver of spirits. It is the radio, the radio set and the television set tuned to their frequency and to their channel. This phenomenon has been known to shamans and magicians for over 100,000 years. It is confirmed in Hermetic philosophy in the first century and later in the Renaissance. Magic begins and ends in the mind. The human mind is attuned to the universal mind. Let us use a haunted house on a Ouija board as a hypothetical example. Uh, there are alleged to be spirits residing in this haunted house. Now, we spend the night in the house with our Ouija board. We may or may not know the names of the alleged spirits, but if they are there, they may make contact. Now, a skeptic would say that we create the contact out of our imagination. But what actually happens from an occult perspective is that our aura extends to receive them. And because our minds are attuned to the entire universe, we can expand and extend our consciousness to infinity. This is the awesome revelation behind such phenomenon as remote viewing. 2,000 years ago, Hermes Trismegistus told us that we can travel anywhere in the universe at the speed of thought. Well, if we can do that, we can certainly converse with a ghost in a haunted house on a Ouija board. During the Victorian era, Samuel McGregor Mathers developed an occult version of the spirit board called the Ring and the Disc. This was a device used in the Adeptus Minor Grade of the Order of the Golden Dawn. 
it, it, it consisted of a symbolic ring that was suspended over a circular disc that displayed all the letters of the magical Hebrew alphabet in a wheel-like pattern. The operator suspended the ring on a thread over the disc and could derive angelic names from the oscillations of the suspended ring. It was a combination of Chevrolet's pendulum and early versions of the Ouija board. We used a version of the ring and disc converted from Hebrew to Phoenician to divine the names of the once holy guardian angel before taking the HGA retreat. I encountered the Chevrolet pendulum in Leslie M. LeCron's book, Self-Hypnotism, Its Technique and Use in Daily Living. You can still get copies of that, and I, as I suggest that you do. I recommend it to all my students. LeCron used, used the Chevrolet pendulum to measure the depth of the hypnotic state. I used it to explore the depths of my mind. I remember the chill that went through me when the pendulum answered the question, do you remember past lives? The pendulum swung vigorously as if it knew I would be suspicious of the answer unless it was enthusiastic. Since then, I have come to appreciate Socrates' statement, we don't learn anything, we just remember the same sort of scientific debunking that resulted from Carpenter's idiomotor effect was applied to the transformation effect of the visual distortion discovered and published by Troxler. Once it was discovered by a scientist who published a paper on it, the debunkers could discredit any occult or magical use of the phenomenon. Apparently, this trend is now extending to hypnosis and to self-hypnosis. The Internet is crawling with documentary videos debunking and discrediting hypnosis. In some respects, we have to agree that the practice has been misused, especially in the area of false memory syndrome. Hypnotherapists have confessed to leading their subjects on in the creation of false memories. Nowhere was this type of therapeutic malfeasance been more obvious than in the recent Brett Kavanaugh Senate hearings. We still have innocent people in prison as victims of unscrupulous hypnotherapists back in the 1990s during the satanic ritual abuse panic. Yes, hypnosis can be misused, but it in itself is not evil. Hypnosis, like the idiomotor and proxer effects, is a tool. The phenomenon itself is not evil. But evil people can use it for bad ends, and mystics, magicians, and shamans can use it to open the gates to other realms of wonder, myth, and mystery. Now, let us, let us return to my 1977 article, Magic and Hypnosis, wherein I established that hypnosis was the operative process of magic. Magic and Hypnosis, annotated in 1999 by the author, by Carl Polk Runyon, M.A., and copyright 1977 and 1999. And note, this article first appeared in Llewellyn Publications, Gnostica, Volume 5, Number 9, Whole Number 45. 
in this article, the author takes the position that hypnosis is the operative technique of ceremonial magic. Visions of spirits appearing in the triangle of art are actually archetypes evoked from the deep mind via hypnotic induction. As a practicing magician specializing in these methods, he gives us an insider's view on how magic really works. I recently received a letter from a man who claimed to be an investigator of paranormal phenomena. After a few introductory remarks, he came quickly to the point. Can you demonstrate that the techniques you practice and teach are authentic and effective and not merely hypnotic and illusory? My reply was somewhat blunt. Ceremonial magic is a valid art, not a pseudoscience, I wrote. Certainly its visions are hypnotic, and they are no more illusory than are Jungian archetypes in the collective unconscious, which in fact is what they actually are. Their existence cannot be proved or disproved in a high school physics lab. I posted my answer with a sense of satisfaction. But in the days that followed, I began to realize that there was a great deal more involved in this question that could be answered in one clever paragraph. The present occult revival has been underway for a decade, but there are still only a few people who actually practice ceremonial magic. And this situation persists in spite of hundreds of different books on the subject in constant circulation. Why is this? The reason is the reason is that many, if not most, of our modern occultists are just as naive about the true nature of magic as was my correspondent. Ceremonial magic is ritual hypnosis. As Dion Fortune put it, magic is the art of causing changes in consciousness to occur in accordance with the will. The reason why so few people practice magic is not that there are so few students of the art. There are thousands but that only a few know the real secret. Granted, there are a number of magicians who will grudgingly concede this hypnotic definition. But in order to be a successful modern magus, I feel that you should embrace the concept. By taking such a plunge, you simultaneously improve your technique, confirm your results, confound your critics, and make an honest person of yourself. Don't worry about betraying some great tradition. Magic was always hypnotic. And don't worry about being scientific because scientists don't know what hypnosis is, and most of them will admit that they don't. If magic was always hypnotic, and if the Kabbalah always taught that the inner microcosm was the key to personal transformation, then why, for the past hundred years, have we been skipping over or completely ignoring the fundamental principles of magic, lost in a maze of quasi-Masonic initiations and quasi-Freudian sexual speculations. We have forgotten that the basic business of the magician is to command spirits, in effect components of his personality. He summons them to visible appearance and then compels them to perform tasks for him. 
Well, that's what it used to be back in the Renaissance times. But in our more recent our more recent Victorian forebearers of the Golden Dawn were not able to reconstruct the old method of magical evocation because they refused to accept its hypnotic basis. Certainly, there is more to magic than evocation. But that is where it starts, in the magic mirror of Yasod, with the ritual of the Goetia of the Lamegaton. This hypnotic system, if properly employed, in the Jungian psychoanalytic process of individuation can be the cornerstone of successful lodge work. Before we discuss the characteristics of magical hypnosis, we need to look a little more deeply into the historical and philosophical reasons why this essential principle of the art has been overlooked and underrated. The Victorian and Edwardian magicians were more reactionary and superstitious, relatively speaking, than their Renaissance counterparts. They bequeathed to us a legacy of quaint and whimsical ideas about magic. We still find ourselves grappling with their outdated conceptions of secret chiefs who come from an astral world that might as well be another planet. Hypnosis was a dirty word in this Victorian fairyland. Not because it was scientific, but because it was subjective. In this case, the tendency to objectify magical phenomenon is characteristic of philosophical dualism. It will be recalled that the dualist believes God to be separate from his creation, whereas the monist holds that God is present in all things. For a more lengthy discussion on these ideas, see my negative and positive Gnosis in Gnostic number 40, number 3. The kingdom of God is within. That's the next part. At this point, the romantic reader may be experiencing something of a letdown. Am I saying that angels, demons, goddesses, and gods of old were only figments of the individual imagination? Certainly not. The gods are real, and their power is awesome. Hypnosis is the key to entering their kingdom. The Olam is Yetzirah, or astral plane. But we must realize that this other dimension begins within ourselves, in our subconscious mind. If we go deep enough, we venture beyond our own personal dreams and into what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious that vast realm where the archetypal gods abide. Make no mistake about it, the collective unconscious is a reality that goes beyond anyone's individual conception of it. It contains the entire history of the human race and probably the destiny of mankind as well. It is certainly linked to the anima mundi, the world's soul, earth goddess of the Renaissance magicians. I hold that its sensitivities... extend throughout the solar system, and I suspect that it is intrinsically related to the DNA code. These ideas are philosophically monistic in accordance with the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus and the doctrines of the Kabbalah. Let's spell that Q-A-B-A-L-A-H. When the student fully grasps the significance of the collective unconscious in relation to the Hermetic Kabbalah, 
He will not need to ask such questions as Carlos Castaneda put to Don Juan. Did I really fly? The objective versus the subjective argument will no longer involve a value judgment, but only a matter of relative perception. This may be a difficult hurdle for some to leap, but the rewards are infinite. The dualists seeking objective phenomenon uh, for example, photographable ghosts, apparitions formed from ectoplasm and the like, is constantly in danger of disillusionment. The more he tries to justify his beliefs, the more anti-rational he becomes. For him, occultism is a long downhill slide away from the intellectual position, whereas if properly pursued, on a monistic subjective principle, the study and practice of magic should expand and extend the consciousness, thereby improving the intellect. The reader might agree with most of what I have said and yet still raise the question, well, what about Aleister Crowley? Wasn't he subjective in his approach to magic? And didn't he practice the goetic thaumaturgy of the Lamegaton? Yes. But even though Crowley wrote an excellent psychological introduction to Mather's translation of the Goetia, showing that he understood the subjective nature of the system, neither he nor his mentor knew the operative technique. Crowley spent many weary hours trying to conjure a spirit to visible appearance in smoke over the Triangle of Art. Now, smoke is probably the worst hypnotic focal point anyone could imagine but a pretty good medium for an experiment in telekinesis, a totally objective process. If Crowley had realized that the system was hypnotic, he probably would have used a crystal or a dark mirror. With this proper equipment, results would have been achieved within 15 or 20 minutes of work. Why didn't he realize this? Mather's ignorance of the hypnotic factor is easier to understand. He was a quixotic medievalist who insisted on objectifying everything. He believed that the key of Solomon was actually written by the biblical patriarch himself. However, Crowley should have known better. Even so, I think that three factors may have combined to keep Crowley from discovering the real secret of Renaissance ceremonial magic. First, the prevailing opinion of the time in the area of phenomenology ran to objective pseudoscientific causes such as ectoplasm of the spiritualists and second. Crowley was a philosophical dualist which thrust him toward objectified conceptions even though he was less credulous than Mathers and third, he was deeply into drugs and such agents tend to activate their own unique effects whereas ritual hypnosis is, is a more directed vehicle through which the magician can produce a desired effect in accordance with the will. So what is hypnosis? What is hypnosis? Nobody really knows. But we do know several things about it. One thing we know is it isn't sleep. In the physical sense, blood pressure, etc., the hypnotic trance is more like the normal... awake condition, the normal awake condition. Putting together several modern definitions of hypnosis, we can come up with something like this. Hypnosis is a state of heightened suggestibility 
in which the mind is totally centered on one idea to the exclusion of everything else, including memory, sensory perceptions, and that are unwanted or distracting. By this definition, anyone who is uh, really concentrating on something, like reading a book or even watching television, may be said to be in a, in a hypnotic trance. They certainly are. Gurdjieff went so far as to suggest that most people are hypnotized most of the time. To achieve their potential, they have to become dehypnotized. The point is that any routine task can become hypnotic. Here in Southern California, for instance, we have, we're all familiar with the freeway driving trance. There are also musical trances, dancing trances. There may even be a general everyday living trance, as Gurdjieff intimated. These trances are different, and they have different levels of intensity and, and sensory selection. If a person is deeply engrossed in a book, he may not hear the phone ring. Whereas if he is listening to the radio with one ear, he will hear the phone. Hypnosis is a normal and common condition. It is the usual behavior associated with the deeper cataleptic and somnambulistic trances that seem strange and mysterious. Hypnosis was known and used in ancient Egypt where magician priests officiated in sleep temples and where, suffer, where sufferers of various afflictions were cured by visitations from the gods, most probably while the patients were in a somnambulistic trance. Egyptian magicians hypnotized animals such as lions and cobras. In India, the occult hypnotist first hypnotizes himself before operating on the subject. This is a most magical approach that ever that very and very effective and it seems unknown outside of esoteric circles from ancient times up into the 1840s the phenomenon was thought to be the result of the manipulation and transmission of the of the of the life force a subtle substance called spirit or in the east kundalini this concept is not as objective or as simplistic as it first appears. The great Renaissance magus, Marsilio Ficino, theorized that the flow of spirit by the rites of astrological magic to improve the health and intellectual capabilities of the operator, Ficino did not extend his method to include the influencing of spirit in others, which would have been dangerous in his time. But such a capability is implicit in his theory. Many medieval and Renaissance magi solicited the intercession of angels and demons in what Daniel Walker calls transitive operations for or against others. But before we assume that this practice was entirely dualistic and objectified, we should remember that these operators derive their philosophy from the hermetic holy book known as the Asclepius, which plainly taught that angels, demons, and gods of the earth sphere were originally creations of man himself. The magicians of the Renaissance knew very well which entities were subjective. We might even call their magical pantheism a proto-Yugian archetype theory in its own right. 
They were also well aware of the powers of fascination, which they attributed to the rays of spirit directed from the eyes of the enchanter. These magicians were monistic in their philosophy. Subjective visions were as important as objective phenomena. They can perhaps be criticized for not caring to differentiate between the two. The crystal ball and the dark speculum, the mirror, were the most important items of ritual equipment. Their use was linked to theories of celestial rays, planetary sympathies, and the like, but the actual operations and the effects achieved were hypnotic. And yet, in Victorian times, Arthur Edward Waite called such, such techniques minor hypnotic processes. How little he understood. Now, now let's discuss mesmerism. Theory in magic and hypnosis was revived in uh, in a different form 300 years later after Ficino by the Viennese physician and Franz Anton Mesmer. He called it animal magnetism. In the age of reason, spirit could no longer be directed by the singing of Orphic hymns under the influence of appropriate planets. The 1780s demanded a pseudoscientific approach. This was the age of enlightenment. Although Mesmer was a keen student of the Renaissance alchemist Paracelsus and a believer in astrology, theorizing that the flow of magnetic fluid in the human body was affected by planetary positions, he succumbed to the 18th century's passion for toot-whistle tinkering by having his subjects sit with their feet in tubs of water filled with iron filings and bundles of jointed iron rods with a flair for the dramatic and, according to his critics, a penchant for hocus-pocus. Mesmer and his fellow magnetizers beguiled Europe for the next 50 years with their miracle cures and spectacular demonstrations of transinduction. Mesmerism has been completely discredited by the medical profession and the scientific community, in my opinion, undeservedly. Because of its importance in magic, we should pause in our brief chronology to take note of how it differs from modern concepts of hypnosis. The current popular notion, still hanging on from medical propaganda predating World War I, is that the hypnotist has no power. He guides a willing subject into a trance state and suggests that the subject use his or her own powers to achieve whatever effect is wanted, providing that effect is also desired by the subject himself or herself. Now, according to this conception, a snake hypnotizes a bird by first gaining the bird's confidence. Next, he asks the bird to relax completely. Then he suggests to the bird that it actually wants to become the snake's dinner. Now, this ploy cannot possibly succeed because deep down inside, the bird knows that it wants to fly away from the snake. 
and yet snakes have been hypnotizing and eating birds for a good many years. The rejoinder that animals are different from humans is not good enough. The point is that there is a big gray area where some of Mesmer's ideas may still be valid. It is important to note that some psychologists who use hypnosis do not share such outdated views on its limitations. Men like Dr. Milton Erickson will frankly admit that they don't know what they do or how they do it. Many of Erickson's colleagues refused to shake hands with him out of a certain reluctance to experience his hypnotic touch. Now, I submit that there are probably is a form of life energy capable of manipulation and even transmission. To totally discount the work of such sincere and qualified researchers as von Reichenbach's Odic Force, Reich's Argon Energy, and more recently, Thelma Moss's Carillion Photography, and the biomagneticists uh, on this subtle form of of energy would be frankly reactionary and an anathema in politics but a praiseworthy attitude in science. The mesmerists held that a magnetizer was a person of great energy with a talent for influencing others. He could accumulate and concentrate large quantities of energy in his body, projecting it from his eyes and his fingertips. His eyes could fascinate and his hands could heal. The passes which the mesmerist made over the subject with his hands, the flow of energy within the patient's body. We should note that Mesmer's method involved what we would call hysterical hypnosis. He brought his patients to an emotional catharsis and sometimes into convulsions in order to clear away supposed blockages, the free circulation of magnetic fluid in their bodies. We are reminded of today's primal scream therapy, a different rationale but a similar effect. In modern magical mesmerism, such violent and imprecise methods of induction are no longer used. We have discovered that actual contact with the fingertips increases the effect and produces a trance state of tremendous potential. The question still posed by mesmerism is whether hypnosis is only a suggestion operating on the individual nervous system or if it also involves manipulation and transference of a form of energy. Science has not disproved this fluid theory. In spite of all the rhetoric to the contrary, what it did prove is that hypnosis can be effectively induced by suggestion without any pretense of transferred power. But to conclude that this therefore proves hypnosis to be exclusively a product of suggestion within the closed system of the individual with no transitive factor involved is patently fallacious. You can prove that ducks fly 
but you have no right to assume as a consequence that they don't swim underwater. Now, to return to our chronology, there is no doubt that the mesmerists were effective. They fascinated half of Europe, and they infuriated the medical profession. Nothing bothers a doctor so much as a healer without a diploma. Even though Mesmer was an M.D., many of his successors were laymen. Although some were rank charlatans, others were operators of considerable ability. Today's performing hypnotists are pale descendants of those wondrous magnetizers who could walk out on a stage and knock people senseless with a mere glance or a wave of the hand. In the early 1800s, mesmerism had the scientific community between the proverbial rock and the hard spot. The mesmerists were obviously doing something, and in accordance with some unknown natural law. But if their theory about the manipulation of life force were to be accepted, then the whole philosophical structure upon which science was based would have to be scrapped. The scientists had their own form of dualism and the inevitable tendency toward objectification that accompanies it. In the 17th century, the French rationalist philosopher René Descartes had broken with the monistic conceptions of the Renaissance to propose that mind and body were totally separate. To carry it further, he postulated that the province of human intellect was separate from the realm of the physical universe. In higher philosophical circles, this idea was never considered more than, an, than a conditional expedient to facilitate the advancement of science and to counterbalance the obvious successes of monism. But on the engineering level, it became a holy dogma. Today, it is philosophically obsolete, but we still find many people in the physical sciences clinging clinging to it. If you have ever wondered why certain spokesmen for American science sound very much like other spokesmen for American religion, then consider how much Cartesian dualism and Christian dualism have in common. In our field of hypnotism, this Cartesian myopia is responsible for the preposterous notion that hypnotic anesthesia is really amnesia. The patient feels the pain, but he forgets it. The scientists and physicians of the early Victorian era, realizing that mesmerism could not be ignored and could not be discredited as far as its actual effects were concerned, still found it impossible to accept in Cartesian terms. Somehow they had to have it they had to have a compromise. In the eighteen forties, a Scottish doctor, James Baird, provided it. He coined the modern term hypnosis and established the modern principles of hypnotic induction. Following the lead of the Abbey Defaria, 1755-1819, who had been a critic of Mesmer's magnetic fluid theory, Braid declared that the motive age agent in hypnosis was the imagination of the subject. 
No magnetic devices, hand passes, or rhythmic powers transmitted from the operator were necessary to achieve a hypnotic trance or its unique effects. Of course, this was true, as as Braid and others proved. We cannot say that they threw out the baby with the bathwater when they cleaned up hypnosis, but we can say that mesmerism is a different form of hypnosis and that the two methods overlap each other. In this regard, we should note that Esterbrook, 1957, cites cases of hypnotic subjects falling into hysterical convulsions similar to those Mesmer's magnetized patients experienced. I also think that there was an element of humbug in Mesmerism that needed chucking out. The water tubs, the iron rods, etc., Now, even though Baird and his followers went to opposite extremes, reducing the awesome secret of the ancients to the harmless status of a verbalized aspirin tablet, their new form of therapy was and still is frowned upon by conservative doctors and scientists. No matter how harmless the hypnotist claims his method to be, initiating a direct influence of the mind over the body, this poses a threat to Cartesian dogma and elicits level averse reactions from a huge segment of the scientific community, even today, and especially right now. Frankly, I am pleased that hypnosis is still not accepted as a science. This is because it is not a science, and trying to conceptualize it in journal jargon terms is not going to make it one. Baird's monoidianism and Van Pelt's more recent Units of mind power are only labels for something no more understood in terms of physical science today than it was in 1840. However, there have been considerable progress in understanding hypnosis from a psychological standpoint. In our next section, psychological suggestibility or the creation of the force. Esterbrook points out that in Freudian terms, hypnosis and autosuggestion, self-hypnosis, tend to function like the early traumatic experiences in imprinting the subconscious mind. According to the theory, strong emotional experiences of a negative nature produce complexes and phobias in much the same way as post-hypnotic suggestion causes the subject to react to a forgotten, intentionally suppressed stimulus in a manner he cannot explain. When I snap my fingers, you will sing the national anthem. The The person who goes into a store crowd, I think And a person who goes into an hysterical fit 
at the sight of a harmless insect. Estherbrook cites several analogies along this line. He likens the brain in this instance to a photographic plate on which emotional traumas and other intense hypnotic suggestions make strong overexposed impressions that do not fade but continue to flash when activated, when activated by consciously perceived and triggered stimuli. This ingenious theory helps to explain the apparent dichotomy between magic and witchcraft. The ceremonialists stress measured hypnotic conjurations, whereas the witches favor the emotionally stimulating abandon of the circle dance, and yet both achieve similar results. This is because both methods imprint the subconscious mind with the desired impression or release a specific suppressed component of the personality to be affected or controlled. If we accept Dr. Estherbrook's theory, and that, uh, that I do as far as it goes, then we must realize that magic and witchcraft are powerful psychodynamic systems, even in an exclusively subjective, phenomenologically conservative sense. The practice of the art or the craft is not as dangerous as our credulous Christian critics contend, but neither is it frivolously dysfunctional as Cartesian pedants would suppose. We are the inheritors of a great ancient system of psychology perfected over thousands of years. It can bring such good and such good and happy happiness to us and our associates like the major systems of knowledge, or it can be misused with harmful effect. In magic and witchcraft, however, the most malicious transitive operations tend to backfire because the would-be sorcerer does not understand the subjective nature of the art. As valuable and important as the psychological aspects certainly are, let us not forget the force. And if you don't think it exists, just remember the last time you were at a sporting event or in any crowd of people where emotions ran high. You were caught up in the excitement as if you never would have as, as you never would have been sitting in front of your TV set. You were receiving an interchange of energy from the crowd. Granting it may have been a secondary interchange by a synchronized biorhythms, but it was transitive, a transitive link-up nonetheless. The negative side of this phenomenon is called mob reaction, wherein otherwise peaceful citizens become violent in the midst of an angry crowd. And the black magic nadir of this syndrome would be Hitler's Nuremberg rallies with thousands of mindless stormtroopers shouting, Sig Heil, Hitler first hypnotizes subjects using the power of suggestion to open their subconscious minds and make them receptive, then raise their emotions to an historical pitch, creating what can best be described as mass mesmerism. Keeping the Nazis in mind, we should do well to consider the dangers of hypnosis and mesmerism. People certainly can be hypnotized against their will, and not merely by deceptive and by deception, as Esther Brooks suggests. Hypnotized subjects have committed murders and other crimes. The use of hypnosis in intelligence operations is common. And such thrillers as the Manchurian Candidate are not as fanciful as they may seem. In occultism, we find the villain 
in the person of the unscrupulous hypnotist guru who is always on the lookout for that one person in every dozen with the right combination of characteristics to make him or her the ideal victim. A natural capacity for somnambulism with a credulous attitude and a weak ego. One out of every five people can reach a somnambulistic trance state, the deepest level of hypnosis. This ability has nothing to do with intelligence or character, any more than having red hair does, but when combined with gullibility and an underdeveloped sense of identity, we have the psychological profile of a true believer. These people are the natural prey of the occult Svengali. We can never fully protect them from such exploitation any more than we can eliminate poverty or crime. But we can substantially reduce the prestige of the shabby operators who prey on, on them by establishing a genuine Western mystical tradition with recognized standards. Now, applying hypnosis to ritual magic. Having established that magic is a hypnotic process and having examined the, the, the theories underlying that phenomenon, we are ready to consider practical sort of application and technique. First, you have to establish an understanding of the objective hypnotic nature of magic with your students and lodge members. And I strongly advise against initiating anyone who refuses to accept us these concepts. And in order to underline this point, I will admit to having made the mistake and finding out there is no convincing such a person afterward to abandon his objective view. You will only succeed in convincing him or her that you are a poor magician because you are unable to make the floor burst open and spill forth the lesions of Tartarus in cinemascope and stereophonic sound. And in this case, you rely on a good preliminary screening to test that informal questioning and cocktail party chatter. Such a person may seem sophisticated. Mention a young and curly glibly and then turn out to be semi, a semi-literate barbarian, a semi-literate barbarian in lot, so be warned. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm in a little insert here. Unfortunately, some of our some of our present magical scholars are just about that seem to be just about that ignorant. If you are fully honest about the hypnotic nature of magic, you cannot avoid ethical considerations. All conjurations, pathworking scenarios, and invocations should be known and standardized. And the more traditional they are, the better. Everyone operates and everyone receives in turn. There must be a cadre of adepti, but their job is to teach others to be operators. As such, they should operate only with members on their own level, or for instructive purposes in ceremonial magic. Everyone should have their turn in taking every role in temple rites, seasonal ceremonies, and initiations. Otherwise, a magical lodge becomes a cult in the worst sense of the word. Let me interject something here currently. Uh, we were discussing earlier tonight uh, about uh, a particular individual that 
that uh, that we we didn't keep very long. Uh, this this fellow uh, could not be hypnotized. We couldn't hypnotize him. He wouldn't hip, couldn't hypnotize himself. But he he mainly wanted to be a magician, so he could uh, so he could uh, hypnotize young women. And that was that was his, that was his main object. Well, we let him go, and then he went out and, and started his own uh, little harem, you know. And and uh, and he said, so, but this, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, no one should uh, no one should uh, hypnotize, uh, ritually hypnotize anyone else uh, without giving them the opportunity to to ritually hypnotize him, uh, you know. Everybody has to operate and everybody has to receive. There is as much self-hypnosis, auto-suggestion involved in magic as that directly induced by an operator. In fact, self-hypnosis may be considered the partial, the practical key in developing the magical trance state. Uh, The OTA insists that neophytes master self-hypnosis as soon as possible. And we recommend Leslie on the self-hypnotism his technique and use in daily living as a basic text. Frankly, no one has any business participating in a magical operation, with the exception of seasonal ceremonies, who is not capable of putting himself into a trance state and maintaining it. It is this ability which can be acquired only through training and practice. That enables the magician to carry out the complex maneuvers required in a formal operation and still be able to hold his trance, plead, deepen the state, or bring himself or herself up to the normal consciousness when necessary. Now, the reader may be thinking that yoga students and Zen sitters uh, can also do this, but I would not agree. Their trance states are closely associated with sedentary asana positions and the induction of the trance is less controlled yeah the Tibetans do most of their magic sitting down I know I I, 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 I did I worked with them for a year so <laughs> that's what they do and we do it standing up and uh I do not mean to imply that yoga techniques are not important in magic or that yoga and magical hypnosis are not uh, interrelated. One of the first techniques the magical student must learn is the practice of pratikam or the fixed gaze. This is the hypnotic facet of yoga, yoga meditation, wherein the student develops the ability to stare at a fixed point or a symbol for long periods of time without thinking or letting the eyes change focus. This ability is absolutely essential to future Almadel and Goetic operations. And you can tell a real magician very quickly, they don't blink. (laughs) A noted anthropologist once wrote that shamans would be recognized by their agitated manner and shifty glance. If he applied this to magicians, he he could not have been more wrong. A magician looks right through you and never blinks. No one can stare him down except another magician. 
Before going any further, we should dispel the idea that magical hypnosis implies a similarity to the post-hypnotic demonstrations of stage hypnotism. If that concept applied, an operator could hypnotize his subjects and then instruct them, as in the analogy of the fellow singing the national anthem, to see a spirit in the triangle when he says the keyword tetragrammaton. And granted, such a procedure would probably work and might have some value as an exper- in an experimental sense, but it is not the way the art is practiced. It should be a gimmicky approach at best, and at worst it would raise serious ethical questions. What I am saying is that ritual magic is a type of hypnosis in its own right, and it has been my observation, being op- uh, having operated, received, and otherwise assisted in several hundred such ceremonies, that the magical trance state is unique. In clinical hypnotism, it is supposed that a somnambulistic state is necessary for visions to be seen and voices to be heard by a hypnotized subject. In goetic evocation, however, a trained ritualist receiver can quickly drop from a light hypnoidal trance state down to a receptive mood where he or she can appreciate the manifestation of an entity in a speculum, communicate with it, allow it to speak through him or her, and also answer an operator's questions in him in his or her own persona, uh, his own remarks to be interspersed with the entity, with the entity's comments, depending upon whom the operator addresses, the receiver or the entity. And the ritualist can do all this while standing up as an active participant in a group ceremony. It is important to note that such rituals do not depend on the use of drugs or hysterical dancing preliminary to the experience. And uh, as, as some commentators have observed, this is an incredible thing to to witness if you if you if you're able to witness this uh the the receiver uh and the operator carrying on a uh a four way conversation uh between the spirit the receiver the operator and and uh it, it just it, it's just it's really it's it's really an an, an incredible thing to to, to witness before any magical working is undertaken, there should be a period of preliminary meditation. This is a hypnotic proceeding usually held by the operator for the coming operation. It's best done outside the temple in an antechamber with a suitable atmosphere of dim lighting. Um, We're just about coming to the end of the hour here, and uh, I don't think I'm—I mean, I don't think I've got time to, to, to finish this. So I think I'm—I'm uh, I'm going to sum up and cut to the, and 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 skip over here to the summation because the summation is of this article is is worth uh, is worth reading. We should establish canons of magic. 
in terms of Kabbalistic philosophy, Jungian psychology, and hypnotic practice. For these are the three pillars upon which the art stands today. We need to develop magic as the bright cutting edge of a new romantic movement to rejuvenate our culture. There is no place in such a sublime endeavor for the charlatan or the mystic demagogue. Magic should develop the ego and the willpower of each individual who practices it. Becoming devotees of a guru may be a valid Eastern practice, but it is the antithesis of the great work here in the West. If hypnosis is our operative method, then we must insist on the highest standards of integrity and magical practice. The power is awesome and the reward is infinite, as any man may conceive. For whatsoever he envisions usually will come to pass. And that's, that, that's the conclusion of Magic and Hypnosis. Uh, this article is has been pirated, of course. <laughs> it's available on the Internet. You can find it. Uh, but uh, also, uh, we we intend to, to, uh, to publish it in a along with a series of essays. Uh, in uh, this uh, concludes our discussion, uh, but, but you know, the idiomotor, the, idi- the idiomotor effect and, uh, is, is, is part, of, part of the hypnotic uh, repertoire and, uh, and, and also, you know, the Proxer effect, which we discussed before in our zero light. All of these techniques and devices are in the realm of, of, uh, of hypnosis. So, uh, next week, next week we'll try to have something, uh, you know, something uh, more in the in the in the area of of uh, pathwork user hypnotic hypnotic uh, procedure. And uh, so be sure and, and, and tune in next week, same time, same same channel, and same station. And until then, good magic. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.